Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi, everybody. This is Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 39. So I am sitting here on Monday, October 7th, and it is the Monday after my Saturday wellness event. And if you're listening uh, and you attended the Urban Wellness Saturday, I want to thank you for joining. I am uh, here just full of so much gratitude for the speakers, the guests who came to the event, and just the process of going through, um, you know, just the planning and, and putting it into place and executing on the plan. Um, and I just, um, I'm a little tired today, but tired in a good way. And I'm sure if you're listening and you um, had a project and you got the project done, you know, maybe it was your teacher training or you were tackling an online course on anatomy or you were learning a new sequence, whatever it is, you just have that good feeling when you are done and um, and that's how I'm feeling today. Now, having said that, I started my day today at 7 a.m. at um, the Tom Brady Training Center in Boston. I live about, uh, I don't know, two or three blocks away from what's called the TB12 Training Center. And um, it's a really interesting concept in that, um, it gives you one-on-one -on -one training, which isn't necessarily unique in and of itself, but um, the trainer I'm working with is both a physical therapist and a CPT, a certified personal trainer like me. And I also have some background in physical therapy from my undergrad um, time at Boston University. So I really like working with her. And one of the interesting things about the center is that they pretty much work exclusively with exercise bands over free weights. And so when I was at the um, session I had this morning, 
we were working a lot on the posterior chain and it reminded me of an experience that I had at my wellness event on Saturday. And I know that a lot of other people were experiencing the same thing. And it's a really good topic um, to use for the podcast. I actually did a quick Facebook live on it this morning, but I wanted to also do a podcast to just share um, a little bit more about some of the anatomy behind what happened. So let me kind of set the scenario up for you. So uh, as part of the Urban Wellness Saturday, I taught a yoga class and then towards the end of the day, um, my other fitness trainer, uh, Gary Sannon from the Boston Sports Club, he had um, some time to do a short fitness session with the group. And so he started us with several variations of bridge pose. Now, when I say variations, it was really interesting because it, they, it was a number of different variations that I typically don't teach, although I do teach some variations of bridge. And what I noticed in my own body was that my hamstrings were cramping so much. And I could tell that the people around me were having the same experience because they were commenting on it. And he made an interesting comment, which I knew in my head, but in the moment of feeling the pain of like a, um, a knot in my hamstrings, I had forgotten that if in this scenario, if uh, I wasn't actually intentionally contracting my gluteus maximus, I was probably using more of my hamstrings to do the work rather than the glute max. And that's why I was feeling almost like a trigger point sensation. That, and also the fact that I might've been a little dehydrated, which can sometimes be the cause of uh, muscle knots. So that inspired me to think, of, think about that idea a little bit more. And that was the inspiration for the Facebook Live. And that's what I wanna to talk to you about today. I'm gonna to expand on the concept a little further. Now, one of the cool things about this topic is that it's really not something you're gonna hear about in your anatomy portion of your teacher training, because this is really more um, kind of conceptually concepts you learn in the exercise science world. And so because I pursued my personal training certificate through NASM, a lot of the training had to do with this kind of thing. And even if you're not going to go through the NASM training or any training to be a personal trainer, um, and I did the training not because I wanted to be a personal trainer, but because I wanted to get additional information and additional training on anatomy and biomechanics. And I would highly, highly, highly recommend that to you if you're looking for something really targeted on anatomy and biomechanics beyond what you'll probably ever get from yoga teacher training. So having said that, um, the idea of some of these concepts I'm going to share with you are more in the exercise science world and more of the vernacular of, of what we see there. But they are, of course, happening to our students on the yoga mat. And so there's plenty of things that we can pull from exercise science into our yoga teaching. And it'll come out in the cues that we use. It'll come out in how we answer student questions when they have questions for us after class. Um, what kind of reservoir of knowledge do we have to answer their questions? And it will also come you know, in our own practice. And I would also say as well, uh, and I'm definitely not paid by any of these folks and plugging anything for any quote unquote advertising reason, 
But um, I would definitely say if you're only practicing yoga, or even if you are practicing yoga and you go to the gym, invest in three sessions with a personal trainer. It will change the way you move. And it is so helpful to work with someone one-on-one from a different discipline besides yoga and have them observe your movement patterns. It is not something that you will get from another yoga teacher. Um, You potentially could get it from a massage therapist, but the massage therapist is massaging you, not watching you in active movement. So if you are interested in this kind of stuff, paying for three, maybe four sessions, I did 10, um, and now I'm doing once a month at the TB12 Center. Um, But I would say at a minimum, get three sessions with a personal trainer and use it as part of your CEU process. Now, you won't be able to get I don't think actual CEUs because it's not part of the Yoga Alliance process for continuing education, but it will be an invaluable use of your time. It'll expand your knowledge. And guess what? You get the workout and you can apply it to your body first. And that is always a great reservoir of knowledge to teach from your own experience and your own body. So having said that, let's get to, you know, kind of what this all looks like. So I was sharing with you this idea that when I was doing these bridge variations, I was feeling the cramp in my hamstrings. And once I started talking to Gary about it, I knew that I was underusing my glute max and I was overusing my hamstrings because I was feeling the muscle knot in my thigh, in the back of my thigh. Now, I wanna also, before I get into some of the mechanics here, talk a little bit about something that was making the rounds uh, on social media in the yoga world years ago. And this was, and it comes up every once in a while, I get asked this question. And the question is, do I need to cue my students to contract uh, their glutes when they come into bridge? And this is going to relate to what we're going to talk about here. So it'll dovetail nicely. So let, let's, let me just start out by saying this. I used to say no. <laughs> no, you don't need to cue your students to contract their glutes when they come into bridge. Um, but now I am slightly modifying my response to that. So let me first kind of chunk this out. So first of all, when I get the question, should I cue my students to contract their glutes, their gluteal muscles, when they come into bridge, I really want you to be more specific with your languaging around that. You know, because now that you're diving into anatomy more, it's really important that you be accurate because I guarantee you, not everybody is being accurate. And you know why? It's because they don't know it. But I don't want you to be one of those teachers. I want you to be one of those teachers who is accurate, who is knowledgeable, who knows the details, who maybe doesn't always say all the details, but when you have those one-on-ones, when you get asked questions, um, and even if you don't, you know the details, right? So here's the deal. Calling them glutes is really a misnomer. It's like calling, well, let me just say, calling the glutes glutes is really a misnomer because you have three different part of, parts of your gluteal complex. You have the gluteus maximus, you have the gluteus medius, and you have the gluteus minimus. Now, minimus and medius are on the lateral aspect of the hip, the outside of the hip. So their primary function is hip abduction, ABD. So moving the one leg out to the side, like if you're in warrior two. Um, Versus gluteus maximus, which is on the back or the posterior aspect of the hip. And that 
is primarily involved in hip extension. So for instance, if you're in warrior one, the back hip is in hip extension. So even though kind of conversationally and in cueing our students, what you'll mostly hear people say when they refer to this muscle um, is your glutes. It is really, it's not the best, most accurate way to describe it. And if you want your students to understand that there are different parts of the gluteal complex, it's really, in my view, more accurate and appropriate to use the full term. So when I talk about cues to the gluteal complex, when people are in bridge, I say glute max. I don't necessarily say gluteus maximus, but I say glute max. And I might even say glute max versus the portion of your glutes that are on the side of your hip, which is your glute medius and your glute minimus. And I think that's enough. I don't think that's super nerdy. I don't think that's more than you know you would want to say. I think that gives people a little nugget of information. And I bet you 100%, maybe not 100%, but I bet you most people don't know that the glutes are more than just one part uh, or comprised of three different muscles. So having said all of that, the point is, I used to um, be of the thinking that when you come into bridge, you don't need to cue people to contract glute max because it's naturally going to be contracting because you're doing the action. But now, you know, and this is just part of learning, right? When you learn more, you can shift your views. I mean, that just happens. Um, but so now that I know a little bit more, um, I am changing my views on that because I really feel like there is such a risk for people to overuse hamstrings that it can be helpful for them to more actively contract glute max when they do things like lunges and bridge pose and bridge pose variations. Okay, so now that I've kind of laid out the premise for you, I want to talk about some of these terms to make sure we're all on the same page. So the first thing we have to talk about is contractions. Uh, not the kind that you have when you're pregnant, but the kind of contractions that muscles make. When I'm talking about coming into bridge and this idea that, hey, you don't need to cue your students to contract glute max because you're doing the action, it's going to be contracting anyway by virtue of the fact that it's creating the force on the muscle and therefore the joint is moving. So what I mean by that is, Gluteus maximus, when you lay on the ground, put your feet down flat and lift your hips up, your hips are moving in extension. It's bilateral hip extension. And the prime mover in that movement is the gluteus maximus muscle. And so because it is the prime mover and it is doing the thing, the thing being hip extension, it is concentrically contracting. Right, and I'm just gonna read you the definition from the NASM guide, the, the sports medicine guide. Concentric activation means that a muscle is producing an active force as it shortens. So we'll kind of leave it at that, there's more to it, but you know, on a high level, just envision the fibers in the muscle are moving closer together because the muscle is shortening, it is moving uh, insertion closer to origin, and creating joint action. You know, that's what muscles do. When they do their job, they create action across a joint, and that is what produces the movement. So let's first kind of come to an agreement that it's a concentric contraction of gluteus maximus, 
as somebody comes from the floor on their back, lifting the hips up into bridge. Now, having said that, I also want to just, um, you know, quickly just review with you generally where the gluteus maximus is. I think you're probably familiar that it's on the back of the hip. It is a very broad, flat muscle. So if you kind of imagine like, um, I don't know if this will be disturbing to you, but like a flank steak, <laughs> um, it is a... Um, it is a, a broad, flat muscle. And so it's got a big origin and a big insertion. So basically, if you take your left hand and you bring it around your back and you cup your buttocks on the left side, that is essentially the, um, the placement of the gluteus maximus. And it inserts, for the most part, on your femur, um, and the iliotibial tract of the fascia lata, which is on the lateral aspect of the hip, neighboring glute medius and glute minimus, which I talked about before, being lateral hip stabilizers and hip abductors. Okay, so now we know generally where it is. Now, because muscles, you know, I mean, the body is a system. So muscles, of course, are near other muscles. And along with gluteus maximus, doing hip extension, along with a bunch of other things, but here we're looking at it as an extender of the hip. Its neighboring muscle that helps it extend the hip is the hamstrings. And the hamstrings are comprised of three different muscles, biceps femoris, um, semitendinosus, and semimembranosus. And again, most people refer to them as the hamstrings. Now, I will generally say, I think that is totally fine. I don't think um, I think it would be a little bit of overkill if you were saying to people, um, semimembranosus, semitendinosus, and biceps, uh, biceps femoris. And the difference between the biceps triad and the gluteal triad is that for the most part, the hamstring triad is a hip extender and a knee flexor. But glute max, glute min, and glute med do some different things. We primarily think of glute med and glute min as a hip abductor and glute max as a hip extender. So there's a little difference there. Um, so now we have an idea. So uh, hamstrings start on the sitting bones and we can just generally say um, that the insertion is, is the knee, whether it's the uh, tibia or um, biceps femoris is fibula and part of the tibia. So I think you probably visually have an idea. So glute max is the big muscle behind you. <clears throat> if you take your hand and you cup your buttocks, that's that. And hamstrings are, you probably know, on the back of your thigh. So now we've looked at where they are. Now we've talked about the type of contraction when we come into bridge, which is a concentric contraction. So now I want to talk a little bit about some of the relationships and some of what we get into when we look at some of these exercise um, science terminology or terms. And this can inform your teaching, especially when you're looking at people and you're seeing them, quote, out of alignment, which is a yoga term. And you're wondering, maybe in your head, why do they look like that? Why can't they do the pose the way I'm teaching it? Many, many times it's because they have some kind of muscular imbalance that 
they're not aware of, you're not aware of it. Um, it may be something they're doing, they're unaware that they're out of alignment and it's a function of a muscular imbalance. Now, one of the reasons all of this uh, content is so helpful for yoga teachers is because there are generalized patterns of what we call um, muscle imbalances. And the more as a yoga teacher, you know about these muscular imbalances, the more you can adapt your cues to help your students, quote unquote, come into better alignment, right? But again, in the yoga industry, we don't even go into any of this in basic anatomy. So the teachers come out of 200 hour training and if they even know the names of muscles, origin and insertion and action, that's a tall order. To then lump into it, you know, muscle compensations and, and the relationship between muscles, whether it's a healthy relationship or an unhealthy relationship, that's just never part of it. So that's really why I wanted to give you all a window into this additional aspect of um, anatomy so that you can have a little bit of a leg up um, on this information and share it with your students. So now that we've kind of walked through all the basics of all of this, one of the things I want to share with you is that when we look at um, data across a whole bunch of people in the population, and that's in large part, exercise science has done that in various studies and with various movement professionals. And so there is a lot of data out there that helps us make, not even assumptions, but helps us start to um, understand common things that happen in people's bodies. And so one of the things that we can look at is what's called a lower extremity movement impairment syndrome. And so what we see in this kind of syndrome is that generally speaking, weak muscles in the lower extremity include muscles like um, the gluteus maximus. And generally tight or overactive muscles in the population, what tends to fall into that category is the lateral hamstring complex. So what that basically means is in a lot of people, their hamstrings are overly tight, which if you're listening to this and you're a yoga teacher or a CPT, you probably are like, yes, I have many clients. I have many students who complain about tight hamstrings. And generally what we see in people is that glute max is really weak. Now you probably won't hear that from students because many times students won't know oh, I have a weak glute max. It's not like they feel like they have that weakness when they're just walking around or just sitting. But if you watch them in their movement, whether it's crescent lunge or warrior uh, one or warrior two um, or airplane pose, you'll start, or eagle pose when they're standing on one leg, you'll start to see different out of alignment red flags. And this can be many times because that muscle is weak. So we often see it in dynamic movement, not so much static. But I will say there is when you do just a static postural assessment, and that's the term that we use in exercise science. In the yoga world, think of it as putting somebody into dasana and looking at them and looking at them for out of alignment type issues just when they're standing still. And this is a big part 
of um, assessing somebody when you work with them one-on-one -on -one in yoga and in personal training. Um, but even just in yoga, when you bring somebody into that first tadasana, it's a great opportunity, especially if you're working with them one-on-one, -on -one, to look at them and look for alignment challenges and the more of an understanding you have about some of these muscle imbalances, the more you'll be able to tell just by having them stand there and just by looking at them, what kinds of things might be weak muscularly, might be overly active, and you can start to create um, yoga sequencing for them that's gonna help them. This is of course all done in the context of a one-on-one, -on -one, but it still works in a group class. And when you bring people into that first Tadasana, definitely look at them and just kind of glance around the room and start to look for some things that might stand out to you um, alignment wise, just when people are standing there at the very beginning. So one of the things that is a syndrome when we assess people posturally is called lower crossed syndrome. And in lower cross syndrome, one of the things we notice is an overly lengthened, um, gluteus maximus. And what that oftentimes looks like is what we call a sway back. Now you may hear the term sway back when you're taking class. Um, somebody may say, oh, if your lower back is caved in, what do they typically say? They probably say, draw the belly button in towards the spine to kind of fill in that space. So you can kind of think of it as if you put your hand on your lower back, you're probably going to notice it's got that kind of inward curve. Well, in lower cross syndrome, the inward curve is super exaggerated and it's called a sway back. The opposite would be a hunchback or a kyphotic spine. Uh, I'm sorry, a lordotic spine. No, kyphosis is, yeah, kyphosis is the hunchback, lordosis is the sway back. So in lower uh, cross syndrome, you'll see a big sway back in people just when they're just standing up, they're not even doing anything. And that can oftentimes be a, um, the result of having an overly lengthened glute max. And um, many times overly lengthened glute max comes from sitting a lot. So folks that are coming to your classes that are sitting a lot all day could potentially experience this. Now, um, another thing you're gonna see potentially with, um, with people who have overly lengthened glute max is what's called pronation distors distortion syndrome, which basically is knock need. And I always, 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 always look for this when I bring people into first ragdoll. So when I have them come in a downward dog and then I do a ragdoll, I'm always scanning the room for knock knees. And you will see it, friends. You will see knock need. And what happens when the knees knock in? There's like a ton of other things that happen none of which is good, right? They'll be sinking into their inner arches, um, their knees will be knocking in. All of that knock-knee posture starts to strain the ligaments that support the knee joint. And then the uh, inner edges of the feet slumping in strains the ankle and um, can disrupt the plantar fascia at the bottoms of the feet. So it's really, really important to cue your students in that ragdoll, that first ragdoll, to notice where the weight is in their feet, to notice um, if their knees are knocking in. So these are all just good cues. But when they have a weak glute max, what commonly is gonna show up is this too much sway back and knock knees, okay. 
So now that we've talked about that, what about when people start moving? So if you have somebody coming into, let's say chair pose and you bring them into chair pose and maybe do a variation where they lift one foot a little bit, you'll notice that their torso rotates a little bit. And this is another thing that can happen when glute max is weak. This is more happening in the context of movement though, right? So it's more happening in the context of movement. So that's just a bunch of different things that we can see in people when they have an overly weak glute max. Now, here's where it kind of all comes together. So muscles work together and they can work together for good <laughs> or they can work together in not a very good way. Now, there is a concept, and this is going to get a little heady, so just kind of stay with me here. It's called altered reciprocal inhibition, and it's the process by which a short muscle, which is overly tight, um, decreases the power of its functional antagonist. So an example could be when the tight hip flexor complex decreases the power of glute max. So now we're talking more about a muscle in the front of the body, the psoas, the hip flexor, being overly tight, and that is affecting the power of the glute max to extend the hip. And you can kind of imagine that. If your students are complaining their hip flexors are tight, they might have trouble taking that leg back. And so it might create some weakness in, um, in hip extension. The other thing that happens though is if the, um, gluteus maximus is weak. And so I've already just laid out all sorts of evidence to demonstrate that weak glute max is a common thing that people experience and shared with you kind of what that looks like, both in postural assessment and in a movement assessment, like a squat, um, something else has to take over. And so what typically is going to take over is glute is the hamstrings. And so this is what's called a force couple relationship. So an example of a force, and I'm just reading this from NASM, an example of a force couple relationship is the gluteus maximus and the hamstring muscle pulling down on the posterior of the pelvis and the rectus abdominis pulling up to keep the pelvic level. But in this idea of a force couple relationship, we start to see that hamstrings and glutes can work together for good. So in the case of keeping the pelvis steady and working collaboratively with um, the muscles on the front of the body and the abdomen, that's a good thing. But what if your glute max is really weak? Your hamstrings are gonna overtake it. So going all the way back to my first story, which was me on Saturday laying on my back, coming into bridge variations and feeling a knot in the back of my thigh, that was because I was using my hamstrings more than I was using my gluteus maximus for hip extension. And so we've come full circle, I love how this has worked out, <laughs> um, to why it can be helpful to cue your students to actively contract gluteus maximus by squeezing their seat. If they do that, they will most likely overtake the force of the hamstrings to create hip extension and have the prime mover for hip extension be gluteus maximus. And oh my God, I am so excited that we actually pulled this all together into a nice little package with a bow on top. I have to tell you guys, I did not write any of this out. I am literally sitting here with a couple of these books open, just speaking from just 
you know, just the experience of it in my own body. Um, and so I'm really glad that I was able to kind of pull it together for you. And I hope that it is hitting home for you in your mind that you're starting to kind of see this. When I worked with the trainer this morning, one of the ways that she cued me to activate glute max to overtake the action of the hamstring is we were just doing basic dynamic lunges. So imagine yourself standing, standing up and then stepping right foot forward, bending back knee, stepping right foot back to the other foot and then stepping left foot forward, right? So just doing some dynamic lunges. But as you're doing it, you're actively contracting your glutes. So you're moving, I'm sorry, your gluteus maximus. So you're moving from glute max more than hamstring. As you bring people on the ground and you have them come into bridge, bridge and any variations, as they come up, ask them to contract glute max. This can decrease the action of the hamstrings and, um, depend more on gluteus maximus to create hip extension. So <laughs> that was a lot, but I really, really hope, again, this is something, these concepts are things that generally are not talked about in basic training. So you're not gonna get this kind of stuff in your basic yoga training, but it really, really, really is helpful to know. Um, now, I just wanna close by saying one thing, which is, the increased tone, right? Remember I said earlier that the hamstrings generally tend to be tight. The increased tone in any muscle can really be decreased to bring the muscle more into a restful state by using what's called myofascial release. Now I'm not gonna go into myofascial release here uh, ad nauseum. I actually have a podcast episode entirely about MFR and I'll link it up in the show notes so you can listen to that if you've missed it. And I also have a free PDF that's all about myofascial release. And that would go really, really nicely with this episode. So I'm gonna link up in the show notes um, the free PDF that you can get on myofascial release. And I definitely want you to download that because that's really gonna help you understand uh, about MFR. Now, I do wanna say two things in closing. Um, well, one thing in closing about MFR, which is that I am doing two workshops on myofascial release, one in October at Health Yoga Life and one in November at Yoga Works in Cambridge. You can find both of these events on my website. And if you've never taken one of my MFR workshops, definitely come if you can, because it's a great way to learn muscles, learn MFR, and do it in an interactive way. So this is not kind of a dry, boring workshop where I'm gonna show you a bunch of muscle slides. You're gonna be rolling around, on the MFR balls. I'm gonna be showing you pictures of the muscles as you are. So it's a fabulous, fabulous way to learn the muscles and really retain the information. So those are coming up October, uh, this month and next month. And my website is barebonesyoga.com, which I think you guys probably know. But again, when you go to the website and you click this podcast episode, you'll see the show notes and that'll give you the MFR download. It'll give you the link to the podcast on MFR you can listen to and it'll give you the link to my events page where you can sign up for those two workshops. So I'm gonna end it here. I would love, love for you to write a review on iTunes. I get so many um, uh, nice emails from people and I love, love, love emails from people about the podcast. It's also great to get some reviews written up so that the podcast can kind of be bumped up in the ratings and get shared with more teachers and that's, definitely something I want. I'd love this podcast to get listened to by more teachers and to grow 
our podcasting community. So thank you so much for listening. I totally, totally appreciate it. I very much value your time. I hope you found this episode valuable and I want to wish you a wonderful rest of your day and I'll see you next time on the podcast. Namaste.